Hey, 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 guys. Welcome to Building This Community. This is your city business and policy development podcast. We're your hosts, Luke Patrick and Andrew Klump. Welcome to this week's episode of Building This Community. Our guest today is Natalie Harris, who is the executive director of the Coalition for the Homeless, as well as co-chair of the Kentucky Interagency Council on Homelessness. Natalie, how are you? Uh, great. Early in the morning, but I'm doing well today. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we, we definitely appreciate it. Uh, I gave you know a quick overview of your background, but can you just give us a little more depth? Oh, sure. Um, I um, actually uh, started in this work uh, because I came to Appalachia um, at, in my teens, actually, uh, to do home repair and fell in love with the idea that you can really make a difference in people's lives through housing, that all the other things that allow us to succeed in life come from that, our ability to gain wealth, have a family, even get your education all come from that. And it felt like something that you could really make a difference with. So I have been working mostly not in actually helping in creating housing, but in advocating for and um, working to fund housing now for 30 years in different capacities. I, I had a small stint where I did some housing development in Dayton, but have mostly worked in Kentucky, both in rural and urban settings uh, with that whole goal of creating more affordable housing for people who need it. That's, that's incredible. And I guess my, my first question is with building homes and affordable housing that's really directed at, at preventing homelessness. Is it is it homelessness or houselessness? I've kind of heard both iterations, but I, I'm just kind of curious your opinion. Yeah, I, th I mean, it, either one. I, I think people start to get comfortable with old terms and they start to take on new and sometimes derogatory meanings. And so we try to remind ourselves what it really means by changing that language. And I think houselessness is a great way to remind people. Uh, I think we think when we hear homeless now, we think that is a definition of that person and that they have done something wrong to be without housing when houselessness just sounds like more of a definition of what it is that that person is lacking. And I think that's important for us to remember that we have systemic issues in our community that actually cause people to lose housing. And I always say that I have people that I know in my life who have domestic violence in their households. They have chemical dependency issues. They may have mental health issues. They lose a job, but those things don't end up causing them to be without housing. Um, but if you are poor and if you come from a systemic system where everybody around you and your family is poor, you don't have the safety net that you need to maintain housing with all these other issues in your life. Absolutely. I, I think that's a more direct term too, if you're going with houselessness. I think it, it really hits the actual issue more directly on the head. But as we mentioned just a minute ago, you are the director, executive director of the Coalition for the Homeless. For anyone that might not know, can you maybe tell us what that organization does and what your role with them entails? Oh, sure. The Coalition for the Homeless has been around for over 30 years and was started um, back in the 80s when people started to see the first people um, who were actually street homeless in the city. Um, and it was actually started from um, a few of the churches downtown who were seeing this and seeing people come to them to ask for services. We were created at that point and we were, we did what we do now, but we were also St. John's Center and we then split as we realized we had really different missions and needed to do that. And our mission is to prevent and end homelessness in Louisville, Kentucky, and that for me, means housing, um, not putting people in shelter. And we serve as the overarching coordinating agency for well over 30 different homeless agencies in the city that all work on addressing homelessness. And while they're doing the day-to-day -day work of sheltering people, housing people, um, providing mental health and physical health services, legal aid, 
Um, we are trying to advocate to change policy that affects um, and causes homelessness, educating the community about the issue so that they can join in with us. And then um, probably the thing we do most is collaborating. So we bring people together to um, increase our impact and to uh, acquire additional funding and to figure out how we can best serve um, people in the community. Well, it sounds like you all provide a lot of you know, wraparound services and, and try and help the whole spectrum here. But can you tell us what the spectrum of homelessness is? I think a lot of times people think of it as chronic homelessness, but does that really tell the full story of, of the people that you're working with? Yeah, so there are two really distinct um, groups of houseless people. And that's not just here in Louisville, that is across the country. And in general, about 85% of the homeless population are those who are short-term homeless. Um, that is the population that is mostly in shelter, uh, while there is another around 15% across the country of the population that are people who are chronic or long-term homeless. That population tends to um, have more disabilities, so more mental illness, more chemical uh disabilities that they're dealing with, as well as, um, as we're all aging, physical disabilities um, for a lot of people who are sleeping outdoors. And so the approach and what we need is different for those two different populations. In Louisville, the, that first group is usually homeless for about four months on average. So, you know, of course, there are outliers on both sides. It's more families with children, people who are very poor. And what ends up happening is it takes, you know, one instance of a hospitalization, a car breaking down, something like that to get evicted, lose housing and go through a cycle until they can um, get the help that they need to get back into housing. The other group in Louisville, our chronic homeless population is homeless on average for about four years, which is a long time. But there are, again, there are some outliers who are homeless for 20 something years. And so that population needs a lot more of us, of the whole community wrapping around them and helping them figure out how to address multiple issues usually to get um, back into housing. So uh, which group is it that that the coalition works more with? You know, you said I was honestly surprised you said about 85 percent are more short term, which that's not as visible, I think, to the average person as the chronically homeless population. So uh, where do your all's resources uh, most often go? Uh, so about 75% of uh, the resources in the community go to serving people who are indoors in this city. Um, and that's like the just became homeless. So I, you know, I call, I get homeless today. I've, you know, I've, I've just been evicted. And so I contact the coalition for the homeless. We have a call center and we would help you get into a shelter for people who are chronically homeless. They may go through that same system and get reservation, but they will tend to leave shelter, go to another shelter, be outside some portion of the time. Um, the biggest shift in federal resources, and so if you're looking at what resources we have for the long term, is that those resources have now been targeted to people who are chronically homeless and long-term homeless. Um, and there's federal research that shows that if you are able to address um, the housing situation of that population is a bigger bang for your buck. So if somebody's going to be homeless for 20 years, if you can find that person, get them housed and get the services that they need so that they can be stable, you're, you're saving our system a whole lot more money than if you are housing somebody who's going to be homeless for four months. Mm -hmm. So we have we, we receive through the federal government through a grant that we submit uh, once a year for all of the agencies in the community, about $15 million. And over half of that money is used to serve those that 
um, are in greatest need, that have the most disabilities, have been outdoors the longest, um, and um, probably are older in age and have the greatest needs. So that group is more likely to get permanent housing resources. That makes a whole lot of sense, you know, in terms of where your money is going to give you the highest uh, return, I guess, on on your efforts. But we mentioned a little bit ago, mental health and maybe addiction. What role does that play in the homeless situation in Louisville versus maybe just simple monetary struggles? So usually, and I thought um, we we had a session yesterday and I thought Councilwoman Nicole George did a great job um, from her history of working with people of talking about when you first become homeless versus long-term homelessness. Um, And usually when people first become homeless, um, it has to do with some loss of income. Um, The greatest reason that people initially become homeless is a loss of employment, Um, but it could be some other um, large hit in income, or um, it may be that somebody um, does have disabilities and they are taken care of by a parent who dies and they lose income that way. But what homelessness does to people, being isolated in that way, even if you may be visible on the streets, is it really causes new mental health issues. And I think a lot of us are understanding that during COVID. I have felt a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, you know, all of those things during COVID because of all the unknown and all of the feeling of helplessness. And that is what tends to happen to people. So um, even if that may have not been an issue, a lot of people will start to have mental health issues once they become homeless. The other thing is people who live in poverty and have traumatic issues happen to them as children tend to have more trauma in the rest of their life and have to come up with ways to overcome that trauma. And our system, is not really set up very well um, to be um, trauma informed. So a lot of, you know, trying to get through the system to get the benefits that you deserve, trying to get through the system to figure out how to get into housing, trying to get to this through the system to get medical care is so frustrating and demeaning and difficult that that also brings up a lot of trauma for people and makes it more difficult for them to address the issues that they're trying to deal with. So while it may not be the instigating cause, um, being without housing and being in a situation where you have so little control Um, does add to people's um, mental health issues. We also have um, a group of people who are severely mentally ill in our, not just in our community, but across the country who cannot get the services that they need. And while we did shift from an earlier situation where what we used to do is um, put people in institutions and lock them up and throw away the key and forget about them, which was terrible. Uh, But what we've done in uh, the reverse now is that we say that unless somebody is a threat to themselves or others, and we're very cautious about what that looks like, then they are on their own and we can't help them. And we cannot put them into a state hospital or some kind of long-term care. And if we do, is for a very short term, usually for about three days, and then that person is released. And there are some people that need more services than three days to overcome a major mental health issue and to be able to get back on medication and doing well so that they can um, function in the community. And we have not as a society come up with a solution for those folks. Um, Sometimes we are able to find those folks, get them into housing first, and then we are able to stabilize them there so that we can get them back onto medication or help them um, uh, you know, deal with other issues in their lives. Um, but there are some people who even just getting through that, that crazy system of getting people into housing may not be possible 
without a lot of help from the community. You mentioned a little bit ago, and it's honestly something that Andrew and I have been talking about with many of our guests lately, because I feel like it's uh, impacted almost every aspect of American life. But but the pandemic, what kind of effect has that had on the homeless community or your all's ability to provide services for them? So early on in the pandemic, we decided um, as a staff that we um, were going to just embrace the belief that we should never let a tragedy go to waste. Um, and so there, there have been um, beautiful shining lights that have come out of um, the pandemic in the way of resources, in the way of seeing the community, um, people who were never really interested in this issue before stepping up um, to say, what can we do? We had very early on in the pandemic, um, one of the bright lights were the number of foundations who pivoted their work and retargeted funding um, to go to um, the least of these during COVID to make sure that people were taken care of. Uh, the housing authority had the ability to change their waiting list so that homeless people went to the top of the list and were able to get into housing, especially families, so that they would not be on the streets during a international pandemic. Um, and then we were also able to get some policy wins, um, getting some changes, even things, you know, like, People being able to have virtual mental health counseling or, you know, other virtual meetings to file your paperwork for housing. So a lot of those things did happen. So I don't want to say that everything over the last 18, 20 months um, has been negative, but it also um, has been really hard for people to deal with the isolation. People were afraid to come into congregate settings so we saw more people out on the streets. We did not, for the safety of everyone, there was no clearings uh, for a period of time. And so um, homeless camps started to build up um, without the, you know, there were immediate services to folks there, but not long-term services like getting people into housing and helping them with, you know, whatever their needs were. Um, and so we, and we also saw things like um, increases in domestic violence and children not able to go to school where teachers could be looking out for them. And so I think it will be years of addressing a lot of the trauma and mental health issues that all of us experienced during that time. We did actually decrease the number of homeless people in the city during the time because of those additional resources. Um, but I think even though a lot of those people are in housing and a lot of people were not evicted because of um, the hard work that people did to keep people from being evicted uh, during COVID, I think those people still experienced a lot of trauma going through the experience of every day wondering, is this the day my landlord's going to kick me out because I'm trying to figure out how to get this money um, to not get kicked out because I've lost my job. Um, so as a country, I think uh, there was a lot of harm, even while there was a lot of good of people, you know, reaching out and trying to help each other. Yeah. And uh, I think that's pretty apparent. One thing you mentioned there, though, was the clearing of existing homeless communities now that was on pause during the pandemic. We're starting to see that again, at least in Louisville. That's on the condition, though, that Louisville is now creating this new safe place kind of a general congregation for some of the homeless to relocate. What can you tell us about that effort and, and kind of how does the coalition of the homeless feel about that as a potential solution? Yeah, so there, um, there is national research that, that I do think bears out in what we're seeing here with the safe outdoor space, which is that I think a lot of people look at solutions for homelessness that they think will be cheaper or quicker to put into place and outdoor safe spaces or shelter, uh, tiny houses, a lot of those are seen um, as being like a quick fix for homelessness. And sometimes that bears out, but usually not. I think a lot of people don't understand the cost for uh, addressing homelessness a great deal of it is the services that people need and the people that need to be hired to help those um, folks. And so having it outdoors 
may not be as cheap as people thought that it was going to be. Um, I think they're going to be able to serve uh, 40 to 50 people in that camp setting. And we're going to spend about $4 million over the term of the program. So um, while that might seem like a, an easy solution I don't think it's as easy or, or any easier than doing something that would have been indoors. Um, and if I lived somewhere where there was no um, bad weather, that might be a great solution. But that's my biggest fear is making sure that we have indoor plumbing and all the things that you and I would want. So indoor plumbing, showers, uh, services. And the one thing I can say that um, has allowed us to be hopeful about the safe outdoor space is that the design that I have seen shows that it will include a lot of services. And to me, that is, makes me more hopeful um, that it won't just be a, uh, you know, a ghetto where they put up a fence and say homeless people can go there, that it's actually a service-rich environment where people can go and get the services. So I am, I'm hopeful about it. Um, but my energy and the coalition's energy has really been targeted toward housing um, and the type of housing I would want to live in, um, which you know includes plenty of space, showers, running water, a really nice bed that I can sleep in at night, um, and some space of my own instead of a congregate setting. Um, and so that's what we're really pushing for. You think I think that makes sense. And I, and I don't blame people for looking at as as many alternatives as possible, because I think it is a complex issue. Um, but I think, I think you're right in that the services need to be at the forefront of whatever the solution is. But with that said, I think the availability of affordable homes and the overall housing market, which I think you alluded to earlier in this interview, plays a significant role. One, kind of how do we get a greater amount of affordable homes and what, what is the role of developers in that? Do we have incentives for developers to build more affordable homes? Yes, I, I love that you asked that. We need 31,000. And actually, the Affordable Housing Trust Fund in Louisville has created some of those units. So let's just even say we need 30,000 um, affordable housing units um, for the lowest income people um, in our city. Um, Louisville, and it's a it's a good and bad thing. Um, we are a um, a much poorer city than most of the large cities in the country, and the positive part about that is that we haven't um, at least let's hope we keep it this way. We haven't gentrified the poor out of our city. So if you go to most large cities in uh, the U.S. now. There are no poor people who can live there anymore. Um, L.A. is a huge example. If you want to work in L.A. and you are, you know, on the lower income of that community, you have to drive two hours to get there um, to work because there's no place affordable to live within the city. We haven't done that in Louisville. And so we could be a model that is able to allow um, people of all incomes to remain in our city and still create housing um, that is safe and affordable um, for that lower income population. Um, and it probably will take two things and we probably will have to come at the problem from both sides because it is so big now. Um, we have really ignored as a country the issue of affordable housing for 30 years. Um, it was seen as, an, as a federal issue for decades um, and we may not have done it in the best ways we created public housing, um, but we, that was in, you know, large buildings with lots of people. And that probably wasn't the best way to do it. But what we did instead is we just decided, well, we're not going to do it at all. And so we have um, a problem that we've created over these decades that needs to be addressed. And it will take probably decades to fill the whole need, but we have to start and we have got to start building units that are affordable. Um, I will say I have worked, um, and I talked about working in Dayton um, years ago, and I did develop affordable housing there um, as a developer. And it is a lot easier to do in other communities um, than in uh, Kentucky because our fair market rents are so low because of um, that's based on the average rents in your community. And because we do still have people who are paying very little for rent, 
our fair market rents are low. And so it's really hard for a developer to create a project um, and the development is not the hard part and they can get the money for that. But in order to continue to operate it, they need to get a decent rent on each of those units every month. And so if what we're paying through the federal government for that unit every month is $700, they can't continue to operate it. If you, it was in a, if that same project was in Dayton, they would get about $900 every month for that unit. Um, and if you, you know, carry that over multiple units, um, then you are going to lose your shirt. So we have to have incentives for developers. We have to figure out um, operating subsidies and how we fund those um, for, so these pro programs can go long-term. And then we need to address, and that's on the housing end. So we need more of those units that can be affordable. But on the other side, we also need to do what we can to increase incomes in our community and to make sure that people have just a basic wage that allows them to afford an apartment. Um, not, you know, it's something extravagant, but just a basic safe apartment. Um, if you work full-time, there's no reason, or work two jobs, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to just afford a place for your family to stay. Well, I guess let's clarify something. What is, are, are you speaking more to government housing or affordable housing, market rate housing? Because I, I know a lot of those terms can be confusing and people mix them up what do you think, or we just need more of the above? What, what are we missing? So according to the assessment that was done by the city on the housing needs assessment, it really showed that if you look at higher incomes within uh, the city of Louisville, we really do have an adequate stock of housing units for those populations. But once you hit um, people who make 30% of or less of the median or the average income in our community. And so, for example, if you were a single person in an apartment, um, that's $16,000 or less. Um, so we're talking about really low income people, even a family with kids that would be, you know, in the tw around 20 or $22,000, depending upon how many kids you have, that you're trying to live on for an entire year. So in order to make that affordable, in order to make a unit affordable for that population, you not only have to build the units um, and help a developer uh, afford to build those units, um, there has to be no debt on the project whatsoever. So you have to make that developer whole in creating it because they're not going to be able to pay a construction loan off over time. They won't have the income coming in for that. And then that people at that income are going to be able to pay $100, $150 a month in rent. So there has to be some kind of subsidy that makes up the difference. And what most people, what most uh, affordable housing developers do is they get that subsidy through federal, um, the most known program is the Section 8 program, which here is administered through the housing authority. But there are other rental assistance types programs. And then there are people who get really inventive with it. Um, they could, you know, get a large donation that sits as a pool, as an operating subsidy to make up for the difference in what people can pay and what they need to actually pay the utilities and pay the insurance for the building and all of those things. So it really, it, it takes two pieces of funding um, just to do the building, which is the construction money and the operating subsidy. And then if you're talking about the kinds of projects that the city um, is working on developing now, which is really exciting, supportive housing, you have to find a third source of funding, which is going to pay for the services that would be there on site for folks. So it is a lot of work for a developer um, to put together this kind of deal. Um, and so it's so important um, that we are thankful to and supportive of these developers who are putting, you know, a lot of times they they put a lot of money up front and they take a lot of risk on purchasing property and doing all that. And so we need to make sure that they can get the zoning that they need to create these units, that they can be made whole on these deals and that we make sure that they can happen. Another thing that we were, were curious about is, are you familiar with any 
any programs or initiatives that you've seen in other cities or states that you would like to see implemented here? Yeah, I, th- I think the biggest thing is the supportive housing. We, um, Kentucky really missed out in two ways. If you um, just simply go um, to Ohio, for example, and they, they are a model for the country, but Ohio prioritized supportive housing early when there was federal money to go toward that. Uh, because we actually, you know, 15 years ago, still had a large number of housing units um, that were not being fully used in Louisville back then. We focused on using federal resources that came down for homelessness on uh, putting that into the subsidy side of things. So we would take uh, a, a lump of money and allocate it out to individuals, tell them to go find an apartment. We would pay that landlord. Um, and that is how we did housing for homeless people um, here in Louisville for a long time. At the same time, other communities, and, and like I said, it's part of it is because the rents are so low here that there weren't developers interested in creating new units. And we did have at that point an adequate number of units, Um, but we kind of missed the boat and we didn't create new units. And so that's what we really need to do right now that while we have resources, um, the city received about $10 million in um, federal home money, we have been talking about how um, they're going to spend the American Rescue Fund dollars, and we're pushing for at least $100 million of that um, to go for the very lowest income people um, to get housing that they need and do, and to do that by creating units, not just by putting the money into the operating subsidies. Um, and so I think that's where we're really behind and we're going to need those units in the future, um, as well as continuing, you know, to find those operating subsidies. Yeah, I think the the, the COVID relief money, the ARPA money, that, that has the opportunity to be, you know, once in a generation style game changing money that could really solve a lot of major issues. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how Louisville ends up spending that money, but we're starting to wrap up here a little bit. So I guess this is the point where we want to give all of our guests uh, the opportunity. If you have any other projects, I know you can plug anything you want. So anything you'd like to promote, the floor is yours. Yeah. So I would love to ask people if, if housing is your issue and I can't imagine you got to this point in this interview, if you're not interested (laughs) in housing and homelessness and getting into this kind of detail of it, um, we have really been pushing, uh, the city to allocate as much money as possible toward, uh, this housing cause. You said it so well that this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, and so I do welcome people to go to our website. It's louhomeless.org. Um, and right there in uh, one of the headings that will come across the screen, um, we're asking people to click in and it'll take you right to a place where you can email your Metro Council member and the city um, to tell them how important affordable housing is to you. And also not just affordable housing, but affordable rental housing for the lowest income people, um, which includes people who are without housing. Um, So that is really um, our big push right now uh, to try to make use of this fantastic opportunity um, and um, to do it as a community. It's been really exciting to see. Um, There were community meetings where people came to speak about what were their top issues. And it was really exciting to see the city um, put housing and homelessness as the top issue as they came in to speak to both Metro Council and the mayor's office. Um, So we want to keep that going. Um, I don't know how long it'll take the city to put together their final plans for how they're going to allocate the money. So uh, the sooner, the better. Yeah, you love to see the community getting energized about subjects like that. That's really awesome. But uh, as we just said, Natalie, we really are wrapping it up. But before we can let you go, we do ask all of our guests this final question. 
if you had the power to change one policy here in Louisville, just kind of snap your fingers and make it happen, what would it be? Right now, I would have to say that the one policy that I would change is our court systems. Um, we learned well during the pandemic that our uh, eviction court system does not work. Um, it is completely um, on the side of the landlord versus the tenant. Um, and if we could change policy so that one, we had more information on how to reach out to people who were being evicted early and help them through the system. Two, so that um, to keep some of the things that we have gotten in place, and I am so thankful to the judges who were there and willing to do this for us, um, to ask, they are now asking landlords to be present in court, uh, which they didn't have to do before, and to also to accept money that is there to help the tenants instead of uh, evicting them right away. And so if we could keep those policies in place, then we can work toward the preventing of families becoming homeless instead of trying to help them you know, pick up the pieces after they've been evicted. Um, it's been really exciting to do that work and we want to make sure those uh, the wins that we've had stay and that we're able to, con to make some more changes to allow us to reach out to more people during eviction. Yeah, I, I think that's actually one of the most, I think most well explained and thought out answers we've gotten, you know, just the causal relationship uh, between the court system and, and the eviction rate. So I, I definitely get where you're coming from on that. But with that said, thank you so much, Natalie. We really do appreciate you, you hopping on with us today. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Really, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. We'll pick back up with our reaction segment after a word from our sponsor. That was another interesting episode, this time with Natalie Harris of the Coalition for the Homeless. This episode seemed very timely, at least in Louisville. We've seen in the past couple of years a spike of homelessness after we'd seen a decline for the last decade. And Louisville, the city, is actually proposing a new type of supplemental housing facility, I guess you could call it, where they're essentially putting a space, an outdoor space for the homeless to more congregate to as a potential solution. But beyond that, Natalie gave a really good, broad understanding of what the type of homelessness is in Louisville and around the country and kind of how they're, they're working to prevent it. So, you know, just, just starting off, what, what was some of your uh, key takeaways? Well, it was a great episode, you know, homelessness, something we've touched on in other episodes, just kind of casually, like a, a quick mention here and there. It was nice to be able to dive in a little bit, a little bit deeper. I think the thing that stood out to me, uh, the ratio of temporary to chronic homeless, I was a little bit surprised mm -hmm. to hear that it was, you know, it's like over 80% of homeless people. It's only a temporary issue, you know, uh, averaging around four months, you know, uh, as you mentioned, obviously, you know, there's outliers, to those statistics, but it was pretty interesting, uh, not exactly in line with what I maybe expected, but that's why we have these guests on, you know, to get the real take. Yeah. And it was interesting to say that like most of the homeless are short-term and that, you know, 75% of the resources go to short-term homeless. So it does seem like it makes sense where we're putting our money where the highest need is, but she did say the city saves a substantial amount of money by helping the chronic homeless. And I think I even pulled a, a stat from the Coalition of the Homeless's website where they said that for each chronically street homeless person who is housed, the city saves approximately 26146 per year. I mean, that's that's just insane. Yeah, uh, it, it's justification that uh, the government should do everything they can, should really be dedicating funding towards trying to address this issue mm -hmm. because it, it's oftentimes going to be a great investment. Well, but I, I just kind of think about, you know, is it more important to, and I, I don't know that there's a true answer for this, but is it more important to spend time helping the chronic homeless get housed or to prevent the chronic homelessness from ever happening? Yeah. And we were talking about that before we jumped on. And the only reason I can think that we aren't trying to address it 
beforehand. And I wish we'd gotten to talk about this with Natalie. It, it slipped our mind in, in the questions, but uh, the only reason I can think that we aren't addressing it is maybe there's a difficulty in identifying the people or mm-hmm. I really couldn't put, put a finger on it. Cause you're right. It would be better to head this off the pass, you know, if you could avoid it. But I think that's the same thing you see with like policing or the fire department or, or like with in healthcare, it's, you know, more money spent being reactive than proactive because that's just the nature of the beast, right? Just because you're not going to be able to solve the problem necessarily until you see what it is and you, and you have to solve the problem once it started, you can't, you can't go back in time and and fix it retroactively. One definite cause. And one thing that is worth bringing up is just the absolute shortage of how of affordable housing throughout Louisville. Uh, I think the statistics said it was somewhere around 31,000, uh, unit shortfall, which is just massive, you know, and and it's going to cost three point five billion to fix that housing issue. Yeah, and and huge. and you know, I know we looked this up, you know, uh, before we recorded the reaction segment, but there was three hundred, there's three hundred eighty eight million dollars that Louisville is getting from the American Rescue Plan Act or ARPA. That even if we spent all of it towards affordable housing, yeah. which we're not going to. It's not even a drop in the bucket. No, no, it's just tiny fraction of what you need to yeah. address the, the housing shortfall. So uh, I don't know. It's an issue that's going to require a cooperation and involvement from the government, obviously, but the private sector is going to have to pull their mm-hmm. way too. They're going to have to get involved. Yeah. And I think it's, it, it's just something where there's going to have to be a lot of solutions that we have to look just outside the box. And that's why I'm not going to hate on Louisville, the city of Louisville's idea of just having like a, a place for homelessness for homeless people to, to at least congregate and maybe get more wraparound services. You know, I'm not sure it's going to work, but I, you can't hate on outside the box thinking at all in this situation, just because there is such a shortfall that like any solution at this point, has to be kind of just tried. Yeah. I, I mean, you can't hate on the idea underlying it, you know, being able to centralize the the provision of resources to the community mm-hmm. is going to lower the cost and, and allow you to actually put more towards the resources. If it works, if it works. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. I mean, it falls in line with some of the outside the box thinking you see in the white paper that we brought up for today, which was the Louisville housing needs assessment. And it was conducted in 2019. It's a pretty long proposal. It it dives into statistics and problem areas throughout the city uh, in regards to housing need. The full paper is about 125 pages. We've linked the executive summary a little bit more digestible, but it offers or attempts to offer a variety of solutions because it's going to have to be a multimodal solution set. You know, there's not one answer to, to such a complex problem. But but as I said, this assessment provides like a range of potential solutions to try and address the housing shortfall in our city, which would go a long way towards eliminating some of the issues driving homelessness. So what, so what are some of those yeah, I mean, like, solutions that they're proposing? Something that stood out to me was like a landlord mitigation fund. So basically the Louisville Metro Housing Authority would create a, a fund for participants of its housing choice voucher program. It would create a, basically an insurance policy for landlords in the case of extended vacancies or, or really excessive damage by on the part of the renters, which would hopefully drive more landlords around the city, more housing developers in the city to participate in the housing choice voucher program, which is meant to kind of incentivize homeownership for lower income individuals. That was one that kind of stuck out. And there's another one they talked about, which is the the lien release and code violation forgiveness program, where they essentially are trying to help mitigate any types of liens or, or code violation costs that are incurred by, you know, low income housing tenants or, or homeowners. I guess when we look at this analysis, you kind of have to look at it from two sides. It's what are the issues to low income home ownership or the tenant side of this? And also what are keeping more developers, landlords from investing in lower, more affordable housing. And I think maybe a solution, a partial solution that I don't know that it's not going to fix it by itself, but I think we have to like, just with the 
affordable housing vouchers that you're talking about, maybe that's a small win that you can use to incentivize landlords to jump into affordable housing more. And then maybe this lien release is preventing the death by a thousand cuts where you're just having so many small fees and things that can add up that can prevent homeownership or prevent tenants from from being successful in, in staying in their homes. So it's definitely a double-sided coin. I, I think maybe the harder part of it is how do you get developers to be a part of this? Because I just, I worry that government run housing is just not going to be enough by itself. You can just look at the math. They're just not going to have enough funds to do it. Left alone, the potential of a lot of government run housing isn't always great. So not even discussing that. I, I'm just not sure they have the financials to accomplish that. So how do we bring landlords and developers down to start building more market rate, more affordable housing? And I think we just have to figure out the, the right incentive programs, right? Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, like Louisville's not going to mysteriously discover, you know, over three billion dollars to throw at this problem. Mm-hmm. The only way you're going to get the you're only the only way you're going to fix the problem is to bring on uh, private developers and landlords. And it's, it's a well-rounded solution. It, ha- it yeah. has to incorporate both sides though, to where you're, you're preventing the death by a thousand cuts of the tenants, mm-hmm. but you also have to make more affordable housing available by incentivizing developers. Yeah. You have to do both. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we covered two of the solutions that we thought were interesting that stood out in this white paper, but I, I really would encourage anybody to look at it. It has, far too many proposals for us to, to vet through each one individually. I mean, I'm looking at probably 25 plus like different uh, ways of trying to address this issue that are all going to, in conjunction, make a, a, a really large effort. Well, and you, you have things now like the Louisville CARES loan, right? Which is Metro-owned loan program where, where they're providing loans to developers to create market rate housing, not necessarily affordable housing, but market rate housing. And I just am not sure that even that is available enough. And and part of the issue too, is it's not necessarily that developers can't make money off of affordable housing or market rate housing for that matter. It's that they can just make so much more doing other type of developments. Right. I mean, going for high end lofts or suites or whatever you want to call it, they're just going to make more money doing it. And it's just tough to say that you have to ask developers to do it out of the kindness of their hearts to go and make money. It just, it's the state of the current housing market. It definitely is. Another component of this, uh, we're talking about developers. And I think when we mentioned that we're talking about like large scale developers, people that can really move the needle. But as you brought up, Andrew, before we started started this uh, conversation, there's kind of a, a gap in the middle. Yeah, it's called it's called the missing middle. I think it's a common like urban planning concept, and it's just that you know you have a lot of single family ho- homes and you have a lot of apartment buildings, big complexes, but you just don't have a ton of those you know duplexes, fourplexes. The Highlands has a number of them and they used to have, they used to be fairly affordable, but they've just skyrocketed because the demand for the neighborhood's gone up and the housing market's gone up. If you could see more of those in even mid, mid market housing, right? Um, not even necessarily low income areas and then put more of those missing middle duplexes, fourplexes, you know, in lower income, mid income places. I think that could help alleviate some of the issues. And I don't know if that's a policy change where we just need to say anywhere there's single family zoning, they at least need to allow duplexes because you could think of a place like Germantown where they're, where they're shotguns, right. And maybe putting four units inside one place on a shotgun might be difficult, but having a duplex, even in Germantown, there's no excuse why that you, if you have a single family home zone home, you should be able to do a duplex immediately. I mean, I think you'd see half of Germantown, like just raise the roof. You know, they, they yeah. immediately stack uh, if they don't already have it, like a second second unit on top. And uh, it, it would be almost overnight. You'd see the housing density in that part of the city swell and puts a yeah. downward pressure on like the, the housing market. Yeah. So I, I think the missing middle is, is just a policy perspective that could allow for a little more alleviation. And I'm not sure that it would get dipped low enough into the, into the values, but maybe in certain markets it would, it just depends 
but I, I think this is a type of solution where it's just, you kind of have to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks at this point. Right. I mean, yeah. Cause I just don't, and, and I don't want this, this podcast to appear like, okay, well, we're essentially asking developers to be the saviors of homelessness because they're not the solution by themselves either. Yeah, no, I mean, government's going to play a role. There's a lot. And like I said, with the the missing middle aspect of like converting maybe a single family into a duplex, like the reason I said the conversation is focused on larger scale developers. When you're talking about changing a single family to a duplex, that's usually a single homeowner, you know, that's like a much more personal, small scale and and hopefully diffuse solution that Mm -hmm. like many people throughout the city can engage in to improve their home value. Maybe they can reap that in the equity, like when they go to sell, it'd be a really good Mm -hmm. solution to try and increase values for like the, the homeowners, like in that lower to middle income area and also increase housing density Mm -hmm. to maybe alleviate some of the housing pressure here. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the solution. And and I'll just bring up one more that, that you had in in your white paper this week, they talked about community land trusts. I think that's an interesting concept as well. You know, it's essentially like, you know, Audubon parks and incorporated city, you know, it could be kind of like a, a homeowners association uses deed restrictions. So they're not the same as, as an actual government, but a community land trust is basically an area occupied and, and owned by a, a nonprofit. And then those, they typically have long-term leases to all the quote unquote homeowners in the neighborhood. And then when the homeowners leave, they get less of a percentage of the equity when it sells, but that percentage that they don't get goes back into the community land trust and helps keep the property values low enough and more affordable and hopefully maybe even contribute to keeping the area up in, in a cleaner, better, better format. Yeah. But Absolutely. it's a, it's just an interesting concept because it's, it's kind of inverse of what homeowners associations and incorporated cities want because incorporated cities and, and homeowners associations want the property values to go up. Like that's the goal, right? Because then eventually you can sell your property or you retire or you do whatever and your property is worth so much more and you make money. The land trust is really intended to keep the property values down, which is just a very interesting concept. And I, I know Cincinnati's done one. I'm just curious the longevity of that, just because it's, it's just kind of inverse to everything that we've done in America, but that doesn't mean that it can't be a successful alternative solution. And I, I think Louisville should try that as well. Just even if it's on a small scale to try it and see how that works over a number of years. And then if it does work, transition and do more of it. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I, we could, I feel like we could go all day, especially yeah, probably, yeah. out of this white paper, but, but we probably need to wind it down. Do you have anything else before you need to sign off? No, I think we're good. Appreciate you all listening, guys. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. As always, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us on Building This Community. If you'd like any more information, you can follow us on Twitter at buildingthiscom, C-O-M, or you can follow Andrew at Andrew J. Klump. And you can also follow Luke at LMP43. Definitely subscribe and we look forward to talking to you guys next week.